I want to welcome you to the first of several panel discussions at our symposium on women's ordination. Before we start, we're going to have a prayer, and then we'll ask our panelists to introduce themselves. Let's bow our heads. Our Father in heaven, we have a burden that your holy Bible would be exalted, yes. that you would make your truth triumphant, that you would use the knowledge that you have shared with each one here, that you'd put it together in a way that would make sense to those who listen. We ask for your spirit to orchestrate this program. And we ask in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. We're going to be talking during the session about hermeneutics. And maybe that's one of those large words that never should have been invented, but it's a word that <laughs> describes how do we study the Bible? How is it that we come to a true understanding? And on this issue of women's ordination, that has a lot to do with it, because the truth is that we're all looking at the same text. Uh, we have here quite a number of studious persons. I think between them, you might even have a hundred years of careful Bible study. <laughs> and we're not going to add it up and see. But we're going to introduce ourselves, starting with me. My name is Eugene Pruitt. I'm a church planter for Ar from Arkansas. I wonder if each of you would just say a sentence about yourself and your name. I am Mari Veloso, and I have have been a pastor and a theology professor and an administrator. I am C. Raymond Holmes, retired seminary professor. And by the way, there were three of us at Andrews University, C. Raymond, C. Warren Becker, and C. Mervyn Maxwell. That's right. My name is Alan Davis. I am a uh, professor of church leadership at Weimar College, and I'm very, uh, very honored and privileged to be here. Thank you. I'm Ingo Sorky. I'm from Keene, Texas, where I teach religion, Bible, New Testament, Greek at Southwestern Adventist University, and engaged in a lot of weekend ministry as a pastor. <clears throat> Kevin, Kevin Paulson. I have served as a as an evangelist, as a pastor, as a revivalist, and I hold a master's degree in systematic theology and a master of divinity most recently from the SDA Theological Seminary at Andrews University. Laurel Domstiek from Berrien Springs, Michigan. I'm with uh, Christian Heritage Media and Great Controversy Tours. I'm John Peters. I'm a pastor in the Pennsylvania Conference. So this afternoon, we could talk about questions that are very easy for us to answer. We could talk about the questions that we would like to have people ask. But I've put together kind of a painful experience for our panelists, uh, a series of the type of questions that people who are antagonistic to the view that we're promoting, the kind of questions that they might ask. And I just want to see what God is going to do for us in sharing the knowledge he's given to us as a group and answering some of those questions. Before I do, this is a very well-degreed panel. But I want to read you something fundamental to what we're doing. This is from the fifth volume of the Testimonies, page 331. The Bible, with its precious gems of truth, was not written for the scholar alone. On the contrary, it was designed for the common people, and the interpretation given by the common people 
when aided by the Holy Spirit, accords best with the truth as it is in Jesus. Amen. The great truths necessary for salvation are made as clear as the noonday, and none will mistake and lose their way except those who follow their own judgment instead of the plainly revealed will of God. I think maybe the central issue we're discussing this morning is over this question of what does it mean to follow the plainly revealed will of God and how can we be consistent in how we approach some of these biblical texts? And I'm just going to start by reading you one of the questions that we'll be talking about almost right now. Someone could say to us, why are you inconsistent? How do you oppose women's ordination based on a text or two and yet ignore other New Testament commands like greet each other with a holy kiss or men lift up holy hands when you pray everywhere or drink a little wine for your stomach's sake and don't drink any more water or ladies you should be wearing veils. The question that's addressed to us often when we teach about women's ordination is that we're being so literalistic in our approach to scripture that we can't be consistent in how we approach other passages. And I wonder if one of you would like to tackle just that first one. Do you greet each other with a holy kiss? And if not, why not? And how can you be consistent with what you say about women's ordination? Are you raising your hand, Mario? Go ahead. I'm not raising my hand, but I am ready to answer that or Please. any other question that is coming up, not because I know all of them, but because there is a certain common sense in the reading of the Bible. And if I were in Argentina right now, I would kiss my friends or whoever I greet men to men, because that is the way they do it. I remember there was a time when um, almost the French were the only ones in modern time that kissed men to men, but in Russia was the same. So this is not just uh, at the time of Paul that happened that in certain culture we would men uh, kiss another man without having in mind anything that normally people from some other countries would have in mind if, we, if they do it or if they saw uh, some other men doing it. You see, there is here um, a matter of common sense. Do we really follow the scriptures literally? That is another common sense thing. We don't, we are not literalists, not this group. I, I think I know everybody, probably not everybody, but we are not literalists. Simple for one reason. What is inspired in the Bible, it is not the words. The words belong to the writer of the scripture. The inspiration coming from God was the thoughts, the ideas, the concepts, what was the content of revelation. So 
whenever there is anything that is related to words, we take that as belonging to men, and we are not that literalists. We take the content as it is, clearly understood in the scripture, but we are not here to uh, put God in judgment on words. So I think my brother is, you're saying that common sense is needed in scripture, and I'm just wondering how do we know, suppose your common sense says that we should do holy kissing regionally, maybe in Russia, maybe in Argentina, but not here in California. Why don't we do that with 1 Timothy 2 and 3? Why, why do we make a difference? That's what I'm looking for. Go ahead, Brother Davies. Mark Twain once said, common sense ain't common. <laughs> and I think oftentimes when we take a look at the scripture, we take a look at it through the lens in which we're encultured. For example, I, I look at the panel here, and by and large, we, we come from an Anglo-Germanic context. But as I read the scripture, they come from a Semitic context. I don't think that way. I have not been raised to think that way. So as I look at the scripture, and it tells me in Revelation 14.7 that the gospel is to, or excuse me, Revelation 14.6, the gospel is to go to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. The scripture tells me that it should transcend culture and that it's not written just for one culture. So is there a construct that I can look at within the scripture and draw out of that something that would apply to me in an Anglo-Germanic context and somebody perhaps in the Far East. If we can meet at the hub, in other words, meet at the scripture, but not meet at our local context. I find actual markers within the text that tell me is something universal okay. or specific. First Corinthians 14, verse 33 is right in the context of let the women be silent. Verse 33 says, as in all the churches, plural. Yes. Paul in 1 Timothy tells Timothy, I do not permit. He's not telling Timothy, in your situation, don't let the women teach. Paul is saying, I, I don't. So now we have at least two parties, Timothy and Paul. And then in verse 14, 15 of 1 Timothy 3, he says, this is how you conduct yourself in the house of God. This is not isolated counsel. When it comes to example, uh, for example, to the wine issue, he's talking to Timothy and his stomach. And whether that is alcohol or not, either way, this text can make sense. Paul is not telling Timothy, drink wine. The word actually used, and it comes out in all of our English translations, is not drink, but use. So let's say it is alcoholic wine. I, I picture Paul saying there are bugs in the water. Use a little alcohol, and it, it will kill the bugs in the water. There is no license. We can now drink wine for social reasons. But we actually have a statement from Pliny, who is a contemporary of Paul, AD 79, same time frame that this was written where Pliny, an, an extra-biblical source, says, 
medicinal use of wine is unfermented. So either from within the context of scripture or even outside sources tell me Paul sometimes speaks universally and sometimes he says, Timothy, I have some advice for you. I've had an upset stomach myself. Uh, Eugene, I see um, in this particular question, actually, you give four examples here. I see some general principles and I see an application of the principles. In the case of uh, the greeting with uh, each other with a holy kiss, the principle is courtesy, Christian courtesy. And the application of that for Paul was the holy kiss. In the case of lifting up holy hands, the principle was prayer. And the application of prayer in that particular context was lifting up holy hands. It may be on our knees today, it may be folded hands. So we have principles, we have applications. In the case of a little wine, it could be the general principle health, a healthy body, so we have healthy minds. The application was, in this case, a little grape juice may help you, Timothy. And in the case of um, wearing veils, the general principle was headship, that is, leadership, male leadership, and, the and submissive women, or women in submission. The application, in that, in that case, the veil over the head, suggesting submission to the husband or to the man. So we're looking for principles to guide us. And I like the idea, Brother Ingo, that you shared, that we're looking inside the text. Even if we're talking about the issue of greeting with a holy kiss, you look at Romans 16, 16, where you find that. It's right after Paul greets many people by name. The same you find when he does it in Corinthians, when you find it in 1 Timothy. In other words, when you greet someone by name, that's obviously a local context. Uh, I'm, we're not all to greet, greet Andrew Kanikis, but right there, a local hint, and when we see those local applications, or those local applications, we're looking for a principle underneath them that will help us. Someone else, anything they want to share in this? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah a couple of things. <clears throat> Excuse me. The, um, the issue of the wine uh, for, for one's stomach, it's interesting. There is an Ellen White statement very clearly, some here may not be aware of it, where she specifically says that the wine Paul told Timothy to take for his stomach was the unfermented juice of the grape. And uh, that, frankly, settles that issue for me. Um, some of the other questions we're looking at may involve an application of another biblical principle, and that's one that we find in both Testaments, where the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every matter be established. You know, look at the doctrines and standards we hold as a people. How many of them are based on just one passage? I don't know too many. The two or three witnesses principle is really the key when it comes to that. But most of all, on the subject of male headship, this is something that traces back to the original created order. And we cannot stress that enough. What distinguishes the male headship issue from the slavery issue, from any number of other parallels that certain folks like to draw, is the fact that according to the Apostle Paul, this principle goes back to the Garden of Eden, to the original order of gender authority. And on that basis,
it really is in the same category as the Seventh-day Sabbath, which also goes back to a sinless world. And when that principle is recognized, most of the other par parallels that folks seek to draw simply will not stand up because this is an original creation principle that is found throughout the Bible, not just in the Garden of Eden, but through the patriarchs, the priests, and the apostles, and the elders in the Old Testament and in the New. Go ahead, then we'll move on. Yeah, you began your question by asking why are you inconsistent? Because we are accused of being inconsistent with respect to the issue of women's ordination relative to principles. As um, Pastor Peters point out, pointed out, there are principles uh, involved here, such as with a holy kiss, to greet each other respectfully and so on in different cultures. The problem with respect to the women's ordination issue is when all the principles that apply are not taken into account, such as headship and submission. All right. Thank you all very much. Let's take this question a little further. If we're going to look at passages and say that by the context in the passage, we can know whether it's a local application or a universal application. What do we do in 1 Corinthians 11? We've been quoting that several times today about the headship principle or the leadership principle. And yet in that context, we find women are to be veiled. Uh, why do we take part of the passage and say that that is a, a cultural situation, if that's what we do, and then say the other part is a universal? Well, I, th I think that's what I was saying earlier. Um, how many other times in the Bible does it say women should be veiled? I don't know of any other passage. So the two or three witnesses principle would, would, would apply there, it would seem. Uh, what is more, when we find the verse, uh, verse 3 in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, where it speaks about the original created order, we find that throughout the Bible. We find that at creation, like Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. We find that with the patriarchs. When did you find in the Bible where anywhere in Scripture did a woman offer a sacrifice? Where did a woman lead the faith community in the cultic acts of worship? You don't find it. The, the patriarchs, the priests, the apostles, the elders, all were men. This is a universal biblical principle. The wearing of veils by women is not. And maybe even right there in 1 Corinthians 11, doesn't it say plainly that if a man wants to be contentious over this veil issue, that that's not how we do it in the churches of God? Yes. In other words, right there in the text itself, we're told this is not the issue to divide us. We're not told that about many passages of Scripture at all. Mara, you want to share something? Yeah, I wanted to say that the context is telling us the attitude we should have in relationship with the veil. It is, uh, the important thing is the recognition of the authority. And uh, then we should not make any, any discussion or uh, an issue 
out of this matter, uh, but have a well acceptance one to the other, uh, which means it was a matter of a situation, particular situation, which is not to say this is a, a general principle that we would make all uh, differences um, of opinion a local situation, or uh, saying there is a principle that we would transform a council from an, an apostle to somebody in particular uh, being uh, another apostle or another leader of the church to apply that only to this particular situation. Uh, that is not in, um, in this context where we are talking about in uh, 1 Corinthians 11. It is rather the disposition of accepting the authority that the Paul is recommending and not making a whole discussion about the matter. Yes. So our division, the North American division, when it produced its report about women's ordination, it had a whole little section about hermeneutics. And in that section, it introduced an idea or a, a hermeneutic called the principle-based hermeneutic. Are we using that hermeneutic right now when we're talking about these issues we've been bringing up aside from women's ordination? Well, I think Kevin just pointed out earlier that uh, there are some principles that run throughout Scripture, and headship happens to be one of them. It runs from Genesis through the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament, the book of Revelation, as well as it exists in the Trinity. So we're, we're not talking about, in, the, in these applications that we're talking about here, there are specific isolated uh, passages in Scripture that do not run throughout the entirety of Scripture. I think that's the point that you were trying to make earlier. Is that right, Kevin? So you're saying <clears throat> absolutely. The, the problem with the hermeneutic, the principle-based hermeneutic, is when you use it for any text you don't like. It's when you come to a text that doesn't match how you feel about something, you say there must be a principle under it. Right. Uh, I can just imagine me giving a Bible study in Arkadelphia to a person who, when they read the fourth commandment, feels a strong urging to use a principle-based hermeneutic mm -hmm. and to say that the principle here would be that we need to give God some holy time. So let me just <clears> recap <throat> a bit of what we've said, and we'll go to another question. We're not against the idea, we can't reasonably be against the idea of using principles when we're reading the Bible to know which things are for local application, which would vary. We look for hints in the passage. We look for wording that would tell us whether it's universal, whether it's based in creation. We look to see, is it a principle woven all through Scripture, or does it appear in kind of a singular way? Does the apostle say something like, this is how it must be, or does he say, this is something not to make an issue in your local church. We're saying that the scripture is authoritative and it explains itself. Yes. We can't just take a passage and discount it because it seems to us not to match how we feel about something. And everyone wants to say something about that. <laughs> uh, go ahead. There is, there is another thing on this yeah. principle uh, hermeneutic, uh, which is the cultural uh, element in in this uh, hermeneutic. Um, if we were talking about principles, 
it might be okay if the principles are taken from the mind of God, that is, from revelation. But if, if those principles are coming mixed with the culture, and actually the culture driving the principles, then we have a big problem. Because in that case, it is not God who is giving us the principles, but we ourselves are choosing from um, uh, the culture, whatever we think it is proper or fitting in that particular culture. And we cannot allow anybody to create principles for us to follow in the interpretation of the scriptures because we believe that the scriptures interprets itself. That is, God explained us what he has in mind when he revealed Amen. whatever it is in the scripture, not anybody else. Any brief comments, or shall we move on? I have, I have one. Who are you going to? I was just going to say that the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. And when we take a look at the idea of the principles within the scripture, you can glean many principles. The real question that is begged is, is the scripture prescriptive? In other words, does it dictate actions that we could take and be in harmony with Christ? Proverbs 3, 5 and, uh, chapters, uh, 3 verses 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lead not unto thine own understanding. In other words, cultural paradigms could influence you, as, was, uh, as the brother said. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. So I think oftentimes we, we come into this divisive issue because we're leaning too much on our own understanding yes. and not getting deeper into the word of God so that he can direct us such that we are being prescriptive in a manner that he would have us to be and not gleaning principles that fit into the cultural dynamic in which we live. Very briefly, um Nine out of ten times when students ask me a Bible question, I can answer it simply based on textual context, reading the text, or common sense. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 13, Paul actually directly suggests, I'm now talk, moving from principle to application. He says, judging yourselves, is it not calmly or common that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Now he's talking in, in my context here, Paul, how should a woman dress in church? In the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day, clearly there's principle that is non-negotiable. It is the seventh day, Sabbath. But I don't have to go out and buy cattle to keep the Sabbath just because I don't have cattle. But the commandment says your cattle needs to rest too. So within the text, usually there are sufficient hints to help us distinguish principle from application. Just one more comment on uh, the principle-based hermeneutic. The, uh, the folks at the NAD that uh, wrote the article in their final report uh, actually acknowledged that the, um, the reader has authority over the text, not the text having authority over the reader. And uh, when you allow that to happen, that enables the reader now to deconstruct the text. If you don't like what the text is saying, you have the liberty to deconstruct it. So when they read 1 Timothy chapter 3, that a bishop 
should be a husband of one wife, they will deconstruct it, and they have deconstructed it, to read a spouse of one spouse. And they come up with many rationalizations and justifications for that. Nevertheless, they are deconstructing the text. Now, this principle of, of deconstruction goes back to a philosopher by the name of Martin Heidegger, a German philosopher. And uh, one of his colleagues, a Frenchman by the name of uh, Jacques Derrida. And uh, Heidegger and Derrida together developed this whole hermeneutic of deconstruction, which uh, basically for them, whatever you're reading doesn't have any meaning at all. You, you, you just have to make the meaning come out of the text for yourself. So who's ever reading the text develops the meaning of the text. You deconstruct the, the, uh, the text. Now this, this approach has now been adopted, the approach of deconstruction has been adopted by uh, Leonard Sweet and Brian McLaren, who are the uh, pushers for the emerging church. And so when they present their, their sermons and their messages to evangelical Christians, and they're invited to come into Seventh-day Adventist circles and present their message, they basically will take the Bible and deconstruct the Bible on the atonement. And we sit there and listen to it. The principle-based hermeneutic is basically an offshoot of the hermeneutic of deconstruction by German philosopher Heidegger and uh, Jacques Derrida. So you're saying there's quite a difference between someone with deep respect for scripture finding some local applications and someone with a different approach to scripture finding a way to get around a plain, simple command of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Find a way to, to marginalize or to otherwise remove himself from its authority. Right. Uh, let's talk, we could talk about this, but Laura, I'm gonna let you talk because you haven't done that yeah. much. I just want to say that at base of all these questions mm -hmm. is the question of inclusive language and whether you can say, include man for woman, woman for man, or whether it all equals each other. And in order to get around that question, then we have to construct all these other questions to make the what they're doing with their um, substitutions, you might say, work. And so you have to step back and look and say, why are, why are people asking this? You know, what's, what's the bottom motive for asking this? Is it something we're trying to get around? Or are we truly wanting to know whether we should raise our hands when we worship? I think our basic motive for understanding scripture really has to be, what does God really trying to say to us? And are we just trying to sidestep something that God is really saying, or do we really have the correct motive in, in our study? And that brings us nicely back to our first statement about the common sense approach to Scripture. If we want to obey, then the Bible's been written so our common sense will really help us get there. But if we want to disobey, our good sense will help us find lots of ways to get around it. And uh, thank you for sharing that. Culture doesn't always push us in the wrong direction. On the issue of alcohol, hasn't it been that today we've risen higher than even the Bible standard? As Adventists, we advocate abstinence, where in the Bible 
you can't really say that's the, the Bible standard. I'm speaking not my own thoughts, just so I don't sound too scandalous. But don't we allow a progress beyond Scripture in the issue of alcohol? Why not in the issue of women's rights? Truthfully, Eugene, I don't believe we do that. I don't think we progress beyond the Scriptures because what is in the narrative of Scripture is not the same as what is in the commands of Scripture. The commands of Scripture regarding alcohol are very clear and universally negative. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. Whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. There are a number of other passages like that. Now, there are biblical stories about people drinking wine, and there isn't necessarily a word of condemnation delivered there. There are also Bible stories about people buying and selling slaves and people having more than one wife. That doesn't mean God approved. The Bible records the words of Satan. That doesn't mean that they are uh, instruction for us to live. Mm. I do not believe that the Bible on the issue of alcohol is inconsistent or a, an upward trajectory of any kind. I think it is quite universal as far as that's concerned. The problem with the deconstruction approach that Brother John was referring to and the individual who was its principal promoter, I keep reminding people of this because I think it's important for us not to forget Martin Heidegger was a devout Nazi, that's right, who was unrepentant even after the war when he was confronted by survivors of the death camps. Now, why is that important to our discussion? Because it was a cultural thing. If we allow culture to drive our theology, then why not say Heil Hitler when it's popular and when it seems to be the road to national stability and what he called, he said, no one has brought more of an upward uh, glory or trend toward greatness in our country. That's what he said. Now, that's what happens when there is not a transcendent authority to judge culture. Go ahead. Well, I want to defend a little bit to these two men that were here mentioned. Uh, they were working in human literature. They were not working with the Bible. I mean, um, Heidegger and Derrida, they, were, they had in mind just human literature and nothing to do with, with the Bible. And if that was the case, actually, I don't see a big, big problem creating new literature over the creation of somebody else. Mm -hmm. That has been That's done different. many times. It is fiction, it is uh, whatever. But the problem is with those who turn those principles into the handling of the Bible. Yeah, and that's exactly that what... That is the... the, the big difficulty, which it was also mentioned. And that's exactly what McLaren and Sweet have right. done. That right. is where the problem right. comes. Right. Um, uh, and that was taken into uh, the evangelical churches. And some of us are taking it into the, the Seventh-day Adventist church now. And that is the big problem, because we, in that 
way are not only making the wrong uh, use of that method, we are diminishing the content of the thought that God conveyed to us. And this is, may I say it respectfully, sinful. As far as zero tolerance is concerned, the argument is made, we don't have an example or clear command in scripture, so now we have to go outside of the Bible for our faith and practice in the Adventist church. That's actually not correct. Uh, in Leviticus 10, we have an example of the priesthood was not allowed to drink. Mm -hmm. And then in the New Testament, John the Baptist, and we understand ourselves as a John the Baptist, Elijah movement, there's also zero tolerance. So already within Scripture, Old and New Testament, we have examples of zero tolerance. I'd like to comment on that because I, I totally agree with the brother in that we see these examples. We indeed have seen truth advancing. I think, however, we need to understand it within the context and the construct of the antitypical Day of Atonement. Because Dr. Peters is telling us, you know, two of the members of the emerging church movement, Leonard Sweet, Brian McLaren, they're deconstructing the atonement, and many have bought into that. They're drinking the wine of Babylon and getting drunk. Mm -hmm. But what we need to understand within the construct of the antitypical day of atonement, there is no explicit command in the scripture that says abstain from alcohol. It says do not be deceived by it. But as we look, and we even understand this movement of the women's ordination movement was grown, was born out of the temperance movement and the equality movement in the late 19th century. Very interesting how these all came together. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that when we correctly understand the antitypical day of atonement, then the idea of total abstinence is given greater light. Because when we understand through Levitic Leviticus 16 the type we understand the antitype. We are to be fasting. We are to be praying. We are to be afflicting our souls to abstaining from that which is harmful to the soul so that we can have our minds clear to be in union with Christ. I'm sure someone out there in uh, oh, YouTube land, I almost said TV land, is saying get back to the topic of women's ordination. But bear with us for a minute. When we talk about this issue of alcohol, we're asking an important question. Are we progressing from Scripture to something higher or from where we are closer to Scripture? And what we're saying is that there is no progress beyond Scripture. The Scripture is already at the top, that the words of God are pure, like gold in a furnace purified seven times. Already, Scripture is settled. God's words are in heaven just the way they are, settled forever. When we talk about progress, when someone talks about progress beyond Scripture, all they can really be referring to is progress outside of Scripture. And uh, when it comes to alcohol as an example, it was mentioned by Ingo that the priest refused alcohol. In Proverbs 31, that kings and princes are refused alcohol. And then when Paul or Peter describes us in 1 Peter 2, he calls us a what type of priesthood? A royal priesthood. You know in both ways, whether as kings or priests, alcohol isn't for Seventh-day Adventists. And that's not coming from somewhere outside of Scripture, but from right inside the Bible. I just thank God that we have that as a basis for our hermeneutic.
I think Sister Laura wants to say something. Well, I just wanted to say that there is such a thing as progressive revelation. And that is that when I am starting off in the Christian life, I don't understand everything. Hmm. And I need to study and I need to grow. And as I face black and white truth, it's important for my spiritual growth to say yes to God at every stage. But that is completely different than the kind of uh, trajectory uh, that we've been talking about as far as social issues, as far as of scripture. That is different than a personal progressive growth in light. And what is, far as we're concerned, it's always important for us to be willing to say yes to God and new things that we find in scripture to be willing to accept them after we've studied them thoroughly. You see, there is in this progressive revelation a very gross misunderstanding in some people. They, when they say progressive revelation, they, they mean the truth is progressing to become a true. But actually what we find in Ellen G. White and ev everywhere is our personal progression in understanding the biblical truth with it, which is always complete. There is no progress of the truth. It is progress of my understanding of the truth. And this is not what they are talking about. And we should be clear on this little difference which make a huge difference really in uh, when we make it uh, uh, a principle uh, of hermeneutic. And uh, we must remember that new light always harmonizes with the old light. That is correct. So if the new light doesn't harmonize with the old light, it might not be light. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. definitely not light. Uh, so let's do a little testing of some of our own arguments here. It's been mentioned already today that uh, Jesus chose 12 disciples and they were all male. But many people are also observing that they were all Jewish. And they're saying that if we are going to use the maleness as an argument, why not their Jewish heritage? Uh, are we taking a descriptive part of the Bible and trying to make it prescriptive on the issue of women's ordination? You can just put well, the mic to your mouth. Once again, I go back to the fact, or we need to go back to the fact, that this is a universal biblical principle. I remember when that argument was used when Pope John Paul II said that there would be no women priests because there were no uh, women among the 12 apostles, and someone responded in a Time magazine letter, well, there weren't any Polish people among the 12 apostles either. But, but here is the difference. The point is that throughout the Bible, the leaders of the faith community have been men. If it was only the 12 apostles, maybe we might have a case for ambiguity. But there's nothing ambiguous here. Going back to Eden, which Paul uses as his template in 1 Timothy chapter 2, going through the patriarchs, going through the priests, going through the apostles, then the elders of the New Testament, all men. This is God's pattern consistently throughout the biblical record. Jewishness is not an issue. The, uh, the, that, that argument would not fly 
for the simple reason that the biblical record is consistent from the fall from the from before the fall to after the fall throughout the sacred narrative men are the ones god has anointed to lead the flock and interestingly paul and ellen white make gender a specific criteria it's explicit she, she nor Paul make nationality or, or other items an issue, but gender is written, spelled out as an issue. So you're saying if we didn't have the other passages on the issue of gender and ordination, we wouldn't make an issue out of the maleness of the apostles. But because they fit into a consistent pattern, it's just one more chink or chain link in that chain. Good. That's, exa that's exactly right. You know, it's like what F.D. Nichols says, about Philippians 1.23, about, you know, where the Apostle Paul says, I'd like to depart and be with Christ. Uh, some, pe some people in the evangelical world use that as evidence of going straight to heaven when you die. F.D. Nichols says if that were the only verse in the Bible about the state of the dead, they might have a case. But when we have all the other passages and we put them together, the case for the non-immortality of the soul is consistent, and the same is true for the case for spiritual male headship. Okay. Do you sense we're getting a little repetitive? Because the issue of hermeneutics is not a complex one. Didn't we start with the idea that the Bible was written so common people could understand it? And if it really was true that there were 50 or 60 different complex hermeneutical principles we had to understand before we could read the Bible, we would never get there. But it sounds to me as I'm listening to us that what really is required is a humble approach to Scripture to read and believe and practice what's written there. And if we have that, it'll get us where we're going. You wanted to say something? Yes, uh, in that regard, Eugene, just, we just have to look at our heritage. We as Seventh-day Adventists, we came from a group of Advent people. They were looking for the second coming of Christ. They went through the disappointment. And they searched for the meaning of the disappointment. They knew the time was correct, but what happened? What really happened? Jesus didn't come, but something must have happened. And as they studied on their knees, they were intelligent people, but they weren't scholars by any means. And as they studied, they prayed. And they searched. And they allowed Scripture to interpret itself. And although they had disagreements among one another, they ultimately would come to a consensus. And then it turned out that Ellen White would have a vision, and she would confirm the consensus. And so what they were basically doing was using the Bible and the Bible alone, Amen. allowing the plain reading of Scripture to be plain and clear and taking it just as it read. But when there were disagreements or there were conflicts, they would go to all parts of the Scripture where it dealt with that topic. Those two basic ideas letting Scripture interpret itself and taking the plain, clear meaning of Scripture are keys to understanding Scripture. That's where we come from. And that's basically what uh, William Miller did when he was studying uh, the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, the 2300 days. And he used a concordance and simply allowing the Bible to interpret itself. And so if we use the plain reading of Scripture, that's basically the real document in a nutshell. Mm -hmm the methods of Bible study. This would be a good place to end, but we have one more question I really want to get to before we do.
Laurel, Laurel had a quick question. But Laurel wants to say something before we get to that question. Just beyond the Avenus pioneers, the whole great controversy is built on reformers who sacrificed their lives to make the word accessible to common people. And when we relegate the scriptures to scholarship, then we are backtracking on really the whole Reformation. I get to preach about that in just a few minutes. And, um, uh, let's come to our last question. At least I suppose it will be. We might have some final thoughts if we have time. But it's over another issue of consistency. In the very passages that we quote about women's ordination, there are several plain repeated statements even, Kevin, plain statements that women should be silent, should be in silence, must not speak, should ask their own children or their own not children their own husbands at home and I know before we started the panel that uh, my brother right here asked if he could answer this one so I'm gonna just hand it to you and ask you to say something well thank you the issue, the issue uh, really is whether or not a, a woman has the uh, is able to usurp authority over men why do you allow women to speak in church Teach Sabbath school, for example. Preach. We have a lovely woman in our church up in the UP of Michigan, where I pastor since retirement, who was baptized a Seventh-day Adventist about 10 years ago. She has the gift of preaching. Amen. If she was in one of my preaching classes, at the seminary, I would give her an A. And we use her three, four times a year. But she doesn't usurp the authority. A prophet's authority is direct from God. God chooses prophets. A, a male pastor's authority is derived from Christ, who is the head of the church and therefore has something to say about how the church is organized and functions, and who is also the head of every man, as has been pointed out here today more than once. A woman who preaches, her authority is delegated authority. Authority delegated by the male pastor, minister, and the lady that preaches in our church, she recognizes that, Amen. understands it, is committed to that, and the church understands it. So you have direct authority, derived authority, and delegated authority. It's not usurped, it's delegated. So Brother Holmes is saying that we would be happy to have women prophets in our churches if they were true prophets and beware of other prophets because we've had plenty of false ones in our history. But prophets that speak directly for God, we would love to have them. But when it comes to this issue of 1 Timothy 2 and 3 and 1 Corinthians 11 and 14, we don't think, when we take the plain reading and when we compare passages with passages, we don't think those verses are saying that women 
can't speak in church, but rather that they should not have the oversight of the church's teaching authority, that that position of overseer is reserved. That's the one reserved to males. And underneath that authority could be delegated any number of responsibilities. And outside of the local church, there could be many other responsibilities, maybe even teaching in the seminary or working in some other context. There's, there, there's, there's some other verse, verses that we need to compare. Once again, comparing scripture with scripture is the solution. Remember what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3 about the adornment of a meek and quiet spirit with regard to females. Does that mean they're, they're to shut up? No. It means uh, the spirit of submissiveness. In that context, it's talking about wives submitting to husbands. It doesn't mean they're supposed to shut up. Vocal quietude is not the issue. The issue is a spirit of submission. The same thing applies to 1 Thessalonians 4.11, where it says, study to be quiet and to do your own business. Does that mean don't talk? No. It, it has to do with a spirit of respect and submissiveness. And now, as far as the teaching of Sabbath school, this is important because there are two different types of teaching in the New Testament. There is, and there are two different words. The word in 1 Timothy chapter uh, 2, verse 12, which says, I suffer not a woman to teach. That word is a word that denotes administration and governance. And it is only used for women on two other occasions in the New Testament. In Titus 2, 4, where it speaks of women teaching other women, and also in Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, where it speaks about uh, the church of Thyatira permitting that woman Jezebel to teach. Okay? Though, now, there's another word, though, which refers to instruction and expounding. That word is found in Acts chapter 18, verse 26, with regard to Aquila and Priscilla teaching Apollos. Now, that, I believe, is what we would put in the category of Bible instructors, Sabbath school teachers, Bible teachers in, in our schools. All of these are still under the authority of male administrators. Kevin, this is very good and very interesting, but I want Ingo to say something so I can close with my closing thoughts. Go ahead, Ingo. My, my closing thought is I've discovered the Bible is sufficient to define its own terms. And we do that with the word hell. We do that with the word Sabbath. We do that with the word forever. And, and the list exactly. goes, goes on. Comparing scripture with scripture clarifies it, but you have to study and read. Hmm. So we began this panel discussion. Don't you appreciate the panelists? Amen. Can you just tell that if we had let them, they could have talked about this for many hours? <laughs> that, that every question is just touching something that, that matters. And that they've studied it but they haven't all been together, but they've come to the same conclusions. I, they, we, we've come to the same conclusions. We began with a quote, and I want to read that to you again, because I think it's highly relevant to what we're saying here. The Bible, with its precious gems of truth, was not written for the scholar alone. On the contrary, it was designed for the common people. And the interpretation given by the common people, when aided by the Holy Spirit, accords best with the truth as it is in Jesus. We aren't looking for ways to get around the Bible. We're not looking for historical or cultural excuses to ignore what God has to say. 
we're not trying to progress beyond the Bible because the Bible is the ultimate source of truth. It is the standard, and we're trying to get to it. We're learning. Do we find as we study some things written there that are for a local application? Sure, David's not allowed to build the temple, but Solomon is allowed to build it. There are things that differ person to person, place to place. But what you've heard here is that it's not left to our whim or our feeling to know what is personal and what is universal. The text itself has the hints. The passages themselves show us what is for every church and what is for a local application. And if we will approach the Bible in that humble way, take the time it takes to look for those parallel passages. If we'll study asking the Spirit to guide us, do you know we'll come to the same conclusion? Amen. The Bible isn't obscure. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the doctrine, whether I speak of God or whether I speak of myself. I'm thankful for the way God guides his church, the way he's going to continue to do it. And may he, in 2015, lead us to a final resolution on this point. Amen. 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 Let's bow our heads for a closing prayer. Our Father in heaven, I ask you to finish the work you've started on this planet, to use us to be part of it. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.